Why do people die? Oh, we can give causes, cancer, accident, murder, health reasons of various kinds. But why do they really? Why did death come into the experience of every man and woman? We all face it. We've had loved ones, family, friends, neighbors. Not to count those that we read in the paper of famous people. The scriptures tell us that all are alike in death. There's no more rich man, poor man. No more prominent man, obscure man. We're all alike. Well, the scriptures give to us a very clear explanation as to why death entered into the experience of man. And Sue mentioned, it's the serpent. In the scriptures that I handed out for you to read along as we have our study, we'll take a look at it and it describes how it happened. And why it happened, and it also introduces to us God's remedy. God's remedy for death. And we will start reading with the first verse, and you follow along, and I'll read, and, and we'll read a few verses, and I'll make some comments, and then I'll read a few more verses and, and comment, and we'll see what the scriptures tell us about this most vital of subjects, because we all will face it. Every one of us here has a date with death. We don't know when that is. We don't know when that will occur. Could come by surprise. Could come after a long illness. We don't know. We must be prepared because God has made provision for it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now that was just her interpretation. Nowhere in scripture do we have recorded that God said you shall not touch it. He simply said, you shall not eat of that fruit. Now, granted, it's true when a temptation comes along, the the closer you deal with it, the easier it is to yield to that temptation. And if I'm not supposed to eat a particular kind of food, tempting myself by touching it and getting it near to me, and you, you know that temptation... So it's possible that she kind of read into it her own feelings that, well, I don't even want to touch it. That wasn't the command of God. God simply said, don't eat of it. But it certainly would be good not to touch it if you're not supposed to eat it. No sense making it more difficult on yourself to resist the temptation. So we read now in verse number 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. These are verses from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Passing the buck. The man could not, he didn't even stand up and tell her, don't eat of that. He was the one whom God said, don't eat of that fruit. He specifically commanded Adam, the man. It was his responsibility to protect his wife from failure, and he didn't. He failed. He was right there with her. He didn't even open his mouth. He didn't say, Eve, you can't do that. He fell right along with her. And then he had the gall to blame it on her. And then the woman, she just as bad, blamed the serpent, the creation of God. Well... When God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, he said, you'll die. Now, the the more clear meaning of that phrase, you shall die, means dying, you will die. A lot of people say, well, see, he didn't die. Well, yes, he did. He began the process of death. And there were many ways in which he died right on the spot. His innocence died. His relationship with God died. His free conscience died. There were many ways Adam and Eve died right on the spot. Physically, they still had life, but dying, they would die. The serpent came and tempted her and Adam, and they both disobeyed God's very clear command, don't eat of that fruit, of that tree. He gave them everything else they could enjoy, just that one. And we see immediately upon their disobedience and their sin, they began the process of death. 
That's why we die. We die because we inherited that sinful nature that came upon Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God in the garden in Eden. That same nature came through the descendants of man and woman down through the centuries until it came to you and to me. And we all have that same death nature. We're born with it. That's why we die. Now, if it just stopped there, we would really be miserable, wouldn't we? No hope. Seeing the prospect ahead of us that someday that we would die, not knowing exactly the circumstances or the means, life would become rather hopeless, wouldn't it? And notice the interesting thing here. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. They knew God. Unlike us, they did not start out with a sinful nature. They started out with a sinless nature. God created them without sin. Upright, it says. And they fellowshiped with God in the garden. They knew his voice. They knew who that was, calling, Adam, Adam, where are you? He knew who that was. And the reason he knew was because he had fellowship with God prior to this sad day. And notice what happened when he heard the voice of God calling to him. He immediately ran out and said, Hey God, there you are. Well, that's not what he did, did it? He ran and hid. And you know, that's exactly what we do. Now, you're here this morning, and I am grateful for your presence here this morning. But I'm going to ask you a hard question, and you don't have to answer to me. But do you really want to know God? Our initial response too often is, no, I really don't. It's nice to go to church. It's nice to know religious things. It's nice to know about God and about Jesus. And yes, I, I believe there was a Jesus. And yes, I believe he died. And yes, I believe he did many wonderful things in his lifetime. But you don't really want to know him very well. He's just kind of a historical icon that we know about. And a couple of times of the year we especially revere him at Christmas and at Easter. But do you really want to know God? When it really comes down to it, God has to pursue us. Because we do not want to pursue him. That's our nature. That's what we inherited from Adam and from Eve. That same tendency to go hide in the trees. Try to cover ourselves up to look the best that we can with fig leaves. And you know fig leaves don't cover very well. And we do our best to try and look good. 
but we still want to kind of stay in the trees a little bit. Don't really want to pursue God too much. It's God who pursues us. And you know, God didn't have to do that. Because when he told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of that tree in the garden lest you die, he did not promise them anything if they did. He didn't say to them, oh, and by the way, if you do, then here's what I'm going to do. He didn't say that. He didn't give them an option. He didn't give them a fallback position. It's God's grace. It's God's mercy that he pursues after sinners like you and like me. And he pursued after Adam and Eve. He went after them. And he talked to them. What have you done? How come you didn't want a fellowship with me? Adam said, well, you know, I was afraid. I was guilty. I didn't want to come before you. You and I face death because of sin. It began with Adam and Eve. They sinned against God and he told them the judgment that would come upon them when they would sin or if they would sin, dying, you will die. We can be described as dying, we will die. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. That's just the first part. That's just kind of the introduction to it. Then we read verse number 14 of Genesis chapter 3, and it says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is kind of a physical judgment and curse upon the serpent. We don't know the manner in which the serpent moved prior to this occasion. But we know after this occasion, the serpent is on the ground, crawls on its belly, eats dust. Well, obviously they eat more than just dust. But that is a description of moving about in the dirt. That was a curse that came upon the serpent because of his temptation and bringing about and contributing to the sin of Adam and Eve. But the best part yet is verse number 15. Because that begins now to give us the provision that God made for Adam and Eve. It tells us this, verse 15, I will put, he's speaking to the to the serpent, still speaking to the serpent. He's cursed him, he's going to walk on his belly, but there's going to be more. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Pictorial language. What does it mean? 
What did God try to, in this initial confrontation with Adam and Eve over their sin, what did he try to describe to them and explain and reveal to them? Well, a number of things. First of all, he spoke about a man. It says, he. There's a man-child going to come as the seed of the woman. And that man would have the power and the authority to crush the serpent. To crush the serpent's head. Now that can be descriptive of two things. Obviously if you crush the head of any creature, you're going to take its life. (laughs) You're going to destroy it. It also has to do in meaning relating to authority. We speak of the president, for example, as the head of state. And we speak of other foreign dignitaries as heads of state. Those in authority, those who have positions of responsibility and authority. We speak of them as as heads. Sometimes even in the business world, we talk about someone as being the head of their department. They're the one in charge. They're the one who has authority over a segment of the responsibility of a given business. can also be used as the one in charge of a sales force. I had a sales force at one time. I managed 45 men under me. I was their head. I was responsible for their activities and their sales and their business transactions, according to our company. So that this man... This seed of the woman that God promised to the serpent and also to Adam and Eve, because they were there, this man will come who will crush the head of the serpent, taking its life and at the same time destroying his authority. Now, in the process of this occurring, it says that the serpent would crush the heel of this man-child. God is describing here a battle, a war, a conflict, adversaries, foes, enemies, hostility between the seed of the woman and the serpent. The serpent will nip at the heel of this man. Ah, but in the process, the man will crush the serpent. Who does that describe? That describes for us Jesus. You can trace it through the Old Testament. We will not take the time today to follow it all the way through. I will simply show you the end that describes it of Christ crushing the head of the serpent, the devil, the adversary. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, if you have 
a copy of the Bible with you. You can turn there and read if you would like to join me. But I will read from Hebrews chapter 2. Chapter 2 describes Jesus. And it tells about Jesus taking on himself the form of a man. Just like you and me. Flesh. Hands, legs, feet, head, mouth. All of the normal activities of a human being. It says, for a little while he was made lower than the angels. His rightful position was above the angels. But for a little while he took, he took upon himself humanity and made himself a little bit lower than the angels. Now why did he do that? We find it described for us in Hebrews chapter 2 verse number 14. And 15, here's what we read. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took upon himself human flesh. Why? Why would he do that? He didn't have to do that. Why would he do that? The promise of God to the serpent, to Adam and to Eve. Here's what we read. He took himself likewise, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus take on human flesh? To crush the head of the serpent. Just as God had promised to Adam and Eve and the serpent back in the garden in Eden. When did he do that? When did Christ in death destroy the works of the devil on the cross we just celebrated that a short time ago a couple weeks ago we call it Good Friday when we remember the death of Christ on the cross his death on the cross did not result from a failed political operation It didn't result because he was too weak to defend himself. That death on the cross fulfilled the promise made in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That describes what Christ did on the cross. He defeated all of the works of the devil on the cross. Had he simply stayed on the cross, that would not have benefited anyone. Many people died on the cross in those days, a means of torture common to the Romans. Oh, last week, 
we sell two weeks ago. We celebrated on Easter the resurrection. He didn't stay dead in the tomb. He rose again, victorious over death. Only because he rose from the grave could that destruction of the devil be complete. He no longer, the devil no longer has the power of death. God has destroyed it through Christ. How do these things fit for you and me? Well, we already examined how like Adam and Eve we are. We have their same nature. We run from God just like Adam and Eve did. We give excuses and blame everybody but ourselves for our true condition, just like Adam and Eve. We try to cover ourselves and make ourselves look as good as we can. And I'm not just talking about makeup and hair and clothes. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we try to present ourselves as good people. I do good things. Will not help. Only through the fulfillment of the promise of God given on that day as recorded in Genesis 3.15 can you and I find relief from that nature that we've inherited from Adam and Eve. For you see, when Jesus did what he did in his death on the cross and his resurrection, he did it not for himself. He did not need to accomplish that for himself. He fulfilled that for people like you and like me. Helpless before God. Sinful before God. Having no desire to seek after God. That describes one of the ways, the significant way that God came calling after you. Was when he sent Jesus to the cross. And Jesus said beforehand that the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believed on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because of what Christ did on the cross and the works that he accomplished there and in his resurrection, We must come to Christ. We must come out of the woods. We must no longer rely upon our fig leaf religion that looks good but doesn't really provide true protection. And we must come to Christ. What does that mean to come to Christ? There were many people in the day of Christ who came to him who really didn't come to him. No, doesn't that sound like double talk? Well, let me explain what I mean. There were many people who rejoiced when he fed the 5,000 people because they sat in that crowd and they ate the free food that he gave them. Many came to Christ with infirmities of body and mind and he healed them and 
They were glad to receive that healing from him and the good things that he provided on their behalf. But there were many in that day that that describes the only way in which they came to Christ. For Jesus explained in reality what it means to come to Christ. To truly come to Christ, other than just for the goodies, means to cast your trust upon Him and Him alone. He provides for those who come to Him, who trust upon Him, who call upon Him. He provides for them eternal life. That's the new kind of life that He won on the cross and in His resurrection on behalf of people like you and me that we might experience, as I read from Hebrews chapter 2, that we might experience victory over the enemy that he crushed in his death. You and I can experience victory over the evil one. We can walk in a manner pleasing to God, but that only results from coming to God through Christ. All who come to him, Jesus said, everyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Everyone who trusts upon him and calls upon him to save them, to give them this new life that God sent him to give to people like you and me, they receive. None turned away, none denied. All accepted. Have you come to Christ? I don't talk about coming to Him for relief from physical impairments. Oh, we have. We can do that. And God is gracious. God is merciful. On many occasions, He heals and restores even those who don't really believe Him. Have you come to Him in faith, trusting Him for that eternal life that only He can give? That is the true coming to Christ. I pray that the Spirit of God will open your eyes to see the provision that He has made in Jesus Christ for people like you and like me. If you have never come to Christ in that fashion, I urge you to come to Him today. Call out to Him. Tell Him that you trust Him, no longer trusting in yourself to satisfy God, trusting what He did for you as your substitute to satisfy God's demands of you coming through Christ. I pray that the Spirit of God will open your eyes to see how to do that 
and to call upon Christ today. Come to Him. Those of us here who have come to Christ in this fashion can rejoice over what He has done for us. And we know the reality of those descriptions because we experience it on a regular basis of what it means to experience God's life within us, granting us strength and help, giving to us peace of mind and heart, knowing that we have been reconciled to God through Christ. Let's close with prayer, shall we?